Rick Stevens, financial advisor with FRS Financial Group, securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this program are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. For more detailed information regarding any of the topics discussed on today's show, please call 719-500-8700. This is Money Matters, presented by FRS Financial. Here's your host, Rick Stevens. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of Money Matters, presented by FRS Financial Group. I am your host, Rick Stevens, and folks, remember that this, well, this is your show. We love talking about those things that you want to hear a little bit more about, so feel free to give us a call at 719-500-8700. You can shoot me an email, rstevens at frsfinancialgroup.com, or go to our website, frsfinancialgroup.com. Click on that contact tab, send us that question you've got, that uh, topic maybe you'd like to hear a little bit more about on a future episode of Money Matters, because folks, we would love to hear from you. Well, this week, ladies and gentlemen, on Money Matters, I am joined by my co-host, Andrew Rogers. Andrew, there's a there's, there's a football game happening yeah, Sunday I heard. this week. There, there, there's a little thing going on out in Vegas. <laughs> You know, it's just getting to be about time enough that I'm able to talk about it a little bit. A little bit, a little bit. You're 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 okay after the uh, yeah, the title game there. Yeah, okay. I mean, unfortunately, maybe not. Unfortunately, the missus scheduled a family photo shoot Sunday at four thirty. Well, depends on what's going to be in the background of the photo shoot. Uh, you saved money on the reschedule fee. Well, there we go. Because we're not having to reschedule it for a mandatory. Move it. So. There, there we go. Now, now, uh, is the uh, is the color scheme going to still be Honolulu blue? I th- I don't think so. I think we're going with the uh, the very basic cream sweaters, maybe some corduroy. I mean, ah, okay, okay. Well, There's a certain demographic that uh, we all fall into, if you know what I mean. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I do. I I, I do. Um, we're we're coming up, Andrew, on the Super Bowl, which yeah. also means. That we're coming up on the four greatest words in the English language. Because a week from today, as we record, is the date when pitchers and catchers report to spring training. Okay. Four greatest words. Pitchers and catchers report. Um, I was actually uh, uh, reminded, though, that uh, Wednesday next week, not only are pitchers and catchers reporting to spring training, but uh, that's Valentine's Day, too. Do you remember that was coming up again this year? Yeah, kind of. Kind of. Kind of. I almost forgot. I, I uh, actually had to tell a client, you know, thank you for uh, saving my life. Yeah. Because we had a, a meeting scheduled uh, for this week, today, in fact, as we're recording this. He needed to cancel. I said, well, do you want to just bump it to Wednesday next week? And he said, I don't want to be meeting with a dead man because that's Valentine's Day. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, no, we'll we'll bump that out yet another week. Then wait. Uh, to, I mean, it's a big both deal for some people. Some people, uh, yeah, kind of kind of have a big deal okay. uh, when it comes to that. Yeah, I guess luckily, you know, my <clears throat> wife's birthday's that same week, so I've been told to pick one over the other. Oh, you know what? That's actually pretty good because usually what I get 
if that happens, not saying that that happens, but I might happen to have a spouse whose birthday is July 3rd. Yeah. The day before everybody, you know, blows up fireworks in her honor, I've been told. Mm-hmm. Um, we we actually have more like a birthday week yeah. at my house. So it encompasses everything through yeah. there. And sometimes might even stretch into a birthday month. Yeah, she tries to pull a birthday month. Luckily, it's the shortest month of the year. There you go. But there you go. I've also been told that birthday's the big focus as long as it's not discounted chocolates and okay. discounted candies. I can't I can't pull that one. So you can't you can't be bringing something home on the 15th or the 16th is yeah. what I'm is I what can't I'm go hearing. discount shopping at the candy <laughs> aisle. Hold on to a few more days and call it good. Uh well, you know, if if you were able to do that Andrew, I would tell you that might sound a little too good to be true. Yeah. And and actually, that's that's kind of what we're going to talk about on the the show this week. Some of those things that sound a little too good to be true. Yeah, and we might see a couple ads this weekend as well for items that might be too good to be true. Uh, maybe one or two. Yeah. You know, that was that was always my favorite part about the Super Bowl because you know, in my lifetime, the Bears were there twice. That's it. Yeah. Um. So it's not like I got to root for my team often, and more importantly, the Packers were there a lot more often. Well, so at least the last time it had arguably one of the best halftime performances. Well, that's true. That's very true. But I always loved when I was teaching Super Bowl Sunday because Monday I knew what I was doing in every last one of my classes. Mm-hmm. Somebody may have scheduled all of the lessons to line up that this week was marketing week. Yep. And we talked about those Super Bowl ads and you know, we we actually even went through and raided them and looked at all the different pieces that you know we thought were were good, and then came back to see okay, how did uh, America rate them as which was best and which wasn't so good? And there are a lot of things out there that sound a little too good to be true. Okay, and that's where we are headed, uh, folks, this week on Money Matters. Some of those pieces out there that a sound a bit too good to be true. Some of them really are too good to be true, and sometimes it's not a bad thing, but it's in the way that it's kind of presented and understood okay. out there. Um, we know, Andrew, we've been told over and over and over and over again uh, in the investment world that real estate is a good investment. Yeah. And that's true. Real estate is a good investment. 401k with the front door. There you go. Very consistent over years, mm-hmm. what the what the growth in the value is, and and even though we've seen some weird stuff uh, in in El Paso County in particular over the last couple years in terms of the expected growth rate yeah. uh, of real estate values, overall you typically see somewhere in that six to eight percent year over year average growth rate in the real estate world. Mm-hmm. That is one of the few things out there that we can invest in that. Quite frankly, we know we have a limited supply of. They're not making any new land in the U.S. these days. Yeah. And and even the land that they've got out there, a lot of it's getting subdivided into smaller pieces of land to be sold off. Yeah. And there's, there's this push, and oftentimes you see it in certain uh, economic situations, I will put it that way. So are you saying that they come up in these, you know, recessions, but not a recessions, but uh, may have a couple of uh, recessionary indicators? Uh, perhaps. And and oftentimes they're referred to as recession-proof uh, okay. with these particular investment pieces out there. And that's a thing called a REIT. Um, I've gotten a lot of questions about REITs 
in in really the last year, year and a half, maybe. Okay. Not the least of which is what is it? What is this REIT I keep hearing about? Yeah. What What is it? Well, the the fun part about that is it's an acronym, right? It's part of the alphabet soup in my world. And a REIT, R-E-I-T, is a real estate investment trust. Okay. So ultimately what that is, is it is an investment vehicle that typically owns some sort of properties, right? And there are all kinds of different properties that might be in different kinds of REITs. They may own things like office buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them own like shopping malls, whether that's the, you know, like the, the space with King Supers or Safeway, yeah. or it could be something larger like Chapel Hills or the Citadel. They're going to own things like that. Some of them will own health facilities, whether okay. those are clinics and hospitals. Uh, sometimes it's like senior living. Sometimes, uh, I don't know if <clears throat> you've seen very many of these, but there are places out there that the building, all they do in that building is just imaging, right? So they've yeah. got the MRIs and the and the uh, CT scan machines and all of this. You just go to one place for imaging. So it's stuff like that. Uh, storage facilities, whether it's warehouses, whether it's the, you know, you, you pull in through the gate, open up that garage door, store your stuff and put your own lock on it. Um, yeah, those, you know... You store it halls, those self storages that yep. just pop up like weeds nowadays. Yeah, uh, exactly. That, and that's you know we could do a whole nother show on how much excess stuff we have if we've got to buy extra space to store it in. Yeah. Um. You know, I'm I'm a big fan of if you need to store it off site, you should probably just figure out how to get rid of it. Yep. In some way, shape, mm-hmm. or form. So the storage facilities, data centers, right? Just big giant warehouses that house nothing but servers. Those are inside of these different types of properties. You're also looking at things like hotels, apartment complexes, all kinds of properties that can be held inside of a real estate investment trust. Okay. Then those get broken down into four different types of REITs. Okay. There are the equity REITs. These are the trusts that are producing some kind of income. Okay. Right? These are the ones that... Uh, have you know the folks in there paying monthly fees? We're we're garnering X, Y, and Z every month uh, because people are renting or whatever the case may be. But it's it's about creating a dividend of some sort, a profit out of this. Okay. There are some that are called mortgage REITs. They don't hold the property, but they hold the mortgage on the properties. So they're actually making money from the interest coming in that these people are paying off so now what's, in the course of time. What differs between that and one of those mortgage-backed securities that we saw got us into a lot of trouble back in uh, 07, 08? Uh, the short version is <clears throat> we're not selling off high-risk mortgages to okay. go into these. Typically speaking, your mortgage REIT is, is somebody that holds a mortgage, say, on 10 different apartment complexes. Okay. The purpose behind that, right, the builder is building this complex to generate income out of it rather than that that mortgage issue that we saw back in 2007, 8, 9, which is where the high-risk consumer was actually being given the mortgage and didn't have the ability to pay. Okay. These are on the commercial side of things. We also have things called public non-listed REITs. And public non-listed means that they are registered with the SEC, not the Southeastern Conference, but the Securities Exchange Commission. 
However, they don't trade on the exchanges. So they are public, so you can go in and get all of the data, but they're not traded on an exchange. We also have private REITs. The private REIT is something that is exempt from SEC registration. Okay. And it does not trade on an exchange. Okay. So think about that as, you know, it's the it's the difference between if you were to, you know, be flipping through a catalog and be able to pick out one of the funds, the REITs that you want to be able to invest in versus your buddy comes to you and says, hey, I've got a deal for us. Yeah. So like one would be we, you know, look at it, find it on the exchange versus me, you and TJ coming together, putting our money and then trying to get some dividends off of it. Exactly. All right. Exactly. So two two differences in there on the public-private side. Now, a lot of times we, we hear this REIT, and, and, you know, in the last several years, probably really in the last 20-ish, is where we have, as regular everyday folks, started to hear a little bit more and more about this. But they were actually created in the 1960s. Okay. There, there was an act that came out in the 1960s that allowed the creation of this type of an investment. But again, didn't start to become popular until really the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, because they were given this big promise of returns. Okay. Right? Oftentimes, the, the REIT promises a return, and this is where the, the terminology comes in, very important. It promises return. It does not promise growth. And it's because these returns are sometimes not just from the money that flows through because by law, the REIT has to actually uh, send out 90% of their profit to the shareholders. But some of your return also comes based on how much money you put in to that investment. Uh, they will. They they may have some out there, you know, promising a twelve percent return, and you know, let's say in year one, you've got a fourteen percent profit. So twelve percent goes to you. Two percent you get set aside for potential future use. Yeah, you've got a hundred thousand dollars in there. Now year two, let's say it only makes ten percent. Well, we've got 2% from the prior year. We add on to it. Now you've got your 12%. We have some of those that they would call retained earnings from the prior year Mm -hmm. that we've just dumped in. But in year three, let's say it only makes 6% on the profit side. Well, we've sent out the holders that 6%, but we promised them 12. The way they come up with the rest of that, Andrew, is they send you back some of your own money. They take really yes. They will take six thousand of your one hundred, send it back to you because they've promised twelve percent, and now instead of owning a hundred thousand dollars worth, now you own ninety four thousand dollars worth. But hey, we sent you your twelve percent. Yeah, they just oftentimes hide in the small print. Uh, some of that twelve percent might be your own money, and then you might see that you know less in your account. So that's. I mean, why? How did people start getting back into this? And as you mentioned, it's been around since the '60s. But really, what made that kind of explosion happen? Kind of at that turn of the millennium. Well, part of that came about because of the dot com bubble that we saw blowing up. 
where we had three consecutive years of double-digit downs in the stock market, people were looking for, quote-unquote, safety at that Mm -hmm. point. They wanted something that would guarantee them 8%, 10%, 12% returns. And, hey, I can get that guarantee out of this REIT. I'm going to put my money over there so it's, quote-unquote, safe. Okay. I'm going to guarantee that. Now, there's a problem with this, right? Because that guaranteed return sounds terrific. One of the big issues here is that you don't have a whole lot of access to your money when you put it into a REIT. And and in particular, most of them that we see out there are non-traded REITs. So we're not listed on an exchange anywhere. And the non-traded ones are absolutely notorious for limiting your access to your actual money. You you have to have some kind of an event, a liquidation event Mm -hmm. that happens. Right, so if we're talking stocks and bonds and mutual funds and, and things traded on those various exchanges, whether it's the New York Stock Exchange, uh, the Chicago Board of Options, the Pacific Stock Exchange, the Nasdaq, those are typically things that would have what we would call daily liquidity. Yeah, meaning I can sell pretty much any time of day that that exchange is open. That cash settles in my account within the next couple of days, and it gets sent from my account to my bank. After that, yeah. If you think about liquidity, five days really, right? Because if you sell it on a Monday, it settles in your account on a Tuesday. You send it out on that same Tuesday that it settled, and it takes the the banking system always says twenty four to forty eight hours for it to show up in your actual bank account. Yeah. So think five days, five business days yeah, in there. But you actually are able to buy and sell Navit. <laughs> Where it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, on these non-traded, especially on the REITs, it has to be more like if Punxsutawney Phil happens to see his shadow and Groundhog's Day lands on a Tuesday rather than a Thursday, and everything has to line up for them to say, okay, we are going to allow you to liquidate. It, it may even get a little bit crazier than that. I think it's if Punxsutawney Phil can see Jerome Powell's shadow. Does that mean we have six more weeks of no interest rate hikes? I think that's it. I think it's at least six more weeks until we start seeing a rate drop or something like that. So if if all these non-traded REITs have to have some big liquidation event to actually be able to access your funds, where are those funds being held? And is there any transparency when it comes to what's actually being done with your investment? So the, the short version of that is there's a sort of – to okay. it. Um, while you may not see where your exact funds are held, basically when you're in a REIT, you have given that trust, because it's the trust that you've bought a portion of, the ability to use your money to do different things. Okay. Now, sometimes they're going out and they're buying more properties. right? If we think about how illiquid a house is, it's not like uh, it was a couple years ago, and if I put my house up for sale on Monday morning, I've got 15 offers Monday afternoon, and I'm closing on Tuesday. Yeah. In the real estate world, we've got that long, drawn-out period out there, and the REITs have a certain amount of cash that they're allowed to have on hand. Most of it, however, has to be in some sort of property. So it, it becomes a little difficult to liquidate then. Um, typically those liquidation type events, they're going to be the death of the owner of the shares. Okay. Right. So I get hit by a bus and I own a REIT. 
my wife could have them liquidated because the owner has now passed away. Or she can choose to keep them. Right? They always give you those options. Uh, sometimes you might have a merger with another REIT. You may have two REITs that have come together to form one giant real estate investment trust. The mega REIT. The mega REIT. At which point they will buy back the shares from both of them and either trade them in for the for the new REIT or actually give you money for it. And sometimes there are these uh, REITs that decide, you know what, we're going to be publicly traded. So we are going to buy back some of the shares of this so that we have shares available for other people to buy out on the open market. Okay. So you can find those events. However, if you are not having one of those options, and I see it every year, every year I see it, there are companies out there who are willing to take that off your hands, Andrew. They'd be happy to take those shares you have off your hands because we are kind-hearted places, and we know that you would prefer the liquidity. Mm Mm-hmm. Have that money available. And, you know, because we're willing for it to be illiquid, and I know you want liquidity, you're probably going to have to take a little less than it's worth. Um, In fact, if, let's say, it's worth $100 per share, we'll offer you 20 But Because I know, out of the kindness of my heart, I want to give you this money, Andrew, because I know that you want that to be liquid. Yeah, and that convenience fee, or if there's something, you know, really urgent that you need to have access to that, you could. It almost sounds like you're praying about somebody's desperation that you can offer them that, you know, pennies on the dollar to get some kind of access to these liquid funds. Exactly, exactly. That is what happens to folks uh, that, that I see every year. You mm-hmm. know, folks that have ended up in a REIT for one one reason or another. Um, I will say I have never sold a REIT to anybody. Okay. And um, I've never figured out an opportunity as to why it would be in their best interest to have that happen at this point. Uh, because there are so many other ways to invest in that real estate world without buying into a REIT. And you can have liquidity in your funds. Yeah. And, I mean, as you mentioned, there's some times where that security is being you know used and marketed. And it might be coming up with some popular REIT companies trying to, you know, maybe sell them nowadays and with everything. So if you are even seeing this, you know, what are some things to be on the lookout for to if you decide with you and your investment advisor, that trusted professional, what would be some things to look for or maybe against if you're even entertaining such an idea? Well, the, the first thing that you want to do, one of those red flags that's out there, and, and yes, there, there might be a very, very popular company out there these days where the founder has uh, you know, even been on some social media things talking about how he was you know, given the, uh, uh, the task of rebuild millions of dollars in 90 days and you can't use your name or your connections to do it in this town. We're just going to, quote, unquote, drop you in okay so that 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 might be the founder out there doing that parading as a motivational speaker or you know business coach yes yes and and red flag number one if you go to whatever this place is if you go to their website 
and you're trying to look for information on the investments that uh, they are offering you to be part of, if you have to go there and give them all your personal information before they will give you any information on the investments they have, that is a big red flag, right? They want to know my name, my address, my email, my phone number, before they're even going to let me see a prospectus, before they're going to let me see any information on the returns that they've that they've had, what kinds of facilities are held in that REIT. I can't get any of that information unless I give up all of my information. So that's a big red flag on there. Yeah. Red flag number two, and again, it is this particular place we're talking about everything they list is what they list as a targeted quote-unquote targeted return they don't give you the actual returns they just say this is the target we're shooting at well yeah because 10 12 15 is much sexier than 6.8 or we're gonna give you back part of your own money right one of the one of the places on there they actually showed Target return, 30%. Mm-hmm. Well, really? That's a heck of a target. How close does anybody ever get? Well, I wasn't putting in my own personal information yeah. to, to find that out. Right? So it's not the actual return. It's what we're trying to do. Well, I'm sure, you know, even you, day in and day out, as a financial advisor, you're targeting 30 yes. 50% returns. But... Uh, there's not a lot of validity to that when you can also say, hey, here's my track record. It's been averaging this, which is still pretty good, even if it is, you know, a 10 to 12 percent. I might target this, but you're still going to get an actual, you know, proven track record. Absolutely. You know, here's here's what I always tell folks, right? If they ask that question, would you target 30 percent returns? And my uh, my response would be if the market bears that, yes, I'll target a 30 percent return. If I'm talking about over the 10-year time frame, uh, no, I am not targeting 30% over 10 years. Um, We could maybe get 30% once in that 10 years. If you look at most cycles, there's usually a pretty solid 20-plus in a 10-year time frame. But, yeah, no, we're we're not looking that over a 10-year average on that. Um, Red flag number three out there in the REIT world, uh, the particular firm that is out there advertising these things is not an actual investment firm listed with FINRA, who's the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and they're also not listed with the SEC. And if they're not listed with either of those, that means the investments they're putting out in front of people are not registered investments with the SEC. So there are rules that don't apply to non-registered investments that would apply to normal Mm -hmm. investments. Uh, and some of that transparency piece, those are some of the rules that don't necessarily apply yeah. in there. Red flag number four, and this is this is a hilarious part, because there there is an LLC associated with this particular firm. Mm-hmm. And when you look up the information on the about page, it says this particular firm, what does it do? It operates a website. Doesn't say they're an investment firm. Yeah. Doesn't say they're a real estate firm. Doesn't say they're a real estate investments firm. It says we operate a website. 
Well, I mean, we've seen that work out positively in the past. You know, that early relationship between PayPal and eBay. So you have that intermediary that's just going to prove we can do a transaction, but what you actually get for that transaction is up to you. Exactly. Exactly. And one of the other things, if you click on their disclosures, uh, it actually says the following. Some of the statements on this site are forward-looking statements. Okay, so what I take from that is these things aren't reality. These are the things we're hoping for in the future. Mm-hmm. And it says right after that, you should not rely on forward-looking statements as predictions of future events. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. So they have a statement saying right. these are forward-looking projections, but you should not trust those forward-looking statements as proof of what's actually going to happen. And not just proof as what has happened, a prediction of what will happen. And that's the part that gets me. Here's what I think is going to happen, but don't tell me I'm predicting that because I'm not. I don't. I, I have a hard time reconciling those things because it seems to me like somebody has said, we're just making up a number. Don't go by what we say. This really does seem like it's run by Punxsutawney Phil, the more you describe this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that fifth red flag. It's not as much a red flag as it is something that as as consumers we need to be thoroughly aware of because these guys are advertising to literally everybody. Yeah. Right? It's out there, it's it's on social media, it's on television, it's on the radio. They're advertising to everybody. However, to invest in most REITs, you have to be an accredited investor. Now, that's a big word, right? Accredited. What yeah. in the world does it mean? Well, there, there are a couple of different ways to become an accredited investor. One of those ways, Andrew, are through what they call the wealth and income thresholds. Okay. So the financial criteria, excluding your primary residence, because quite frankly, this could actually push a bunch of folks into that category. You have to have a net worth, right? So all of your assets minus all of your liabilities of over $1 million. That creates, in the face of the SEC, an accredited investor. The other way to be an accredited investor is individually. You have income of over $200,000 in each of the last two years, or as a couple, you have more than $300,000 in income over the last two years, and there's a reasonable expectation that you will see the same in the current year. Hmm. So we either go by the cash flow coming in, the income, or we go by the net worth. So those are the financial criteria. However, there are some professional criteria that can put folks in that group as well. Okay. If you hold a Series 7 license, which is a general securities license, or we call that a stockbroker license. If you hold a series 65, which is an investment advisor license, or if you hold a series 82, which is a private securities license, if you have any of those licenses, you can actually be seen as an accredited investor. Okay. If you are a director, a director, an executive officer, or a general partner in the company who is selling the REIT, you are considered an accredited investor. Or 
if you are a family client or a family office, which basically means if my kids were working for me, they could be seen as being accredited. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a knowledgeable employee, quote unquote, knowledgeable employee of the fund. And I, and I assume knowledgeable employee means you know what's going on yeah. with with this. You're not just somebody who's, um, you know, maybe you're you're somebody who's answering the phone. You're somebody who's setting appointments. I wouldn't consider that person to probably be the knowledgeable employee, but I would consider the ones that are out there doing the real estate evaluations yeah. that are determining what sort of properties do we want in this fund. I would consider them to be knowledgeable employees. Well, and we know they're not really most of the time ran through places like FINRA or the SEC. So where where does that whole like knowledgeable employees, things like that, doesn't that get a little close to something that might rhyme with Schminschmeider trading? Uh, perhaps. Perhaps it could, but these are actually folks who are putting their own money into their uh-huh. own fund. And a lot of times uh, in in the uh, investment world where you have portfolio managers, you have you know manager A running this particular large cap fund, okay. oftentimes the company will say, you've got to put your own money in there. Oh, so you got to have a little skin so in the you've game. you got to have, yes, yeah, skin in the game. Okay. So think that of, makes think a little bit more sense. On there. So a lot of different things that, that come up in that world of the REIT, right? That real estate investment trust. So many different things in there, and and, and I got to tell folks as we as we head into this break, if you have been approached for this, if you've got questions about whether or not it makes sense to you, by all means, guys, give me a call. I'm happy to sit down, go through the different pieces with you, tell you whether or not it makes any sense, and and oh by the way, I'll also tell you how much money the person trying to sell that to you is going to make yeah. on you putting in there. Which I got to tell you. Andrew, that's why I think a lot of REITs get sold because mm-hmm. they usually have pretty high commissions. Yeah. Uh, well, especially if you're going after whales. Look at, you know, all those uh, criteria. That's that's fishing for whale. Yes, 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 it is. Well, folks, we are up against that break in today's show. When we come back, we're going to talk about another uh, very misunderstood tool in that uh, investment toolbox. Some of the things that get said about and... Uh, Hopefully we get to educate you on it a little bit. We're going to talk about some annuities when we come back from this break right here on Money Matters. Does stock market volatility have you wondering which way is up? Do the talking heads and doomsayers have you wondering if this really is the end? If you want straight answers from an advisor who isn't just trying to sell you something, call FRS Financial Group at 719-500-8700 to schedule your complimentary appointment today. And remember to tune into Money Matters presented by FRS Financial Group here on KRDO, Saturday mornings at 9 and Sunday at noon. Products and services offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Well, folks, thanks for sticking with us through that break right here on Money Matters presented by FRS Financial Group. Rick Stevens in the studio today with my co-host, Andrew Rogers. And and Andrew, you're you're kind of a handy guy, right? You can fix some things once yeah. in a while around the house. Mm-hmm. Um, you have you have a few tools in your toolbox. Yeah, a few. Have you ever, uh, you know, and you don't really have to answer this, but have you ever used a crescent wrench to maybe pound in a nail before? Sure. 
easier with a hammer, right? Yeah. Usually, usually speaking. But it still gets the job done in a pinch. That's true. That's true. If you absolutely have to have it. But, but generally speaking, if we're using the right tool for the job, it comes in a little bit handier. Yeah. In and there. When it comes to these investments, there's so many tools and you found about a lot of these terms that sound good on the offset, but is this next one we're going to talk about, is this that using a crescent wrench to hammer in a nail? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's uh, actually using a screwdriver to hammer in a nail. Also have done that. Yeah, I, I may have tapped a, a nail a time or two with the, with the top end of a screwdriver just because it was handy, it was close, and I wasn't trying to actually drive enough nails to build a house. Yeah. But, or you're decorating a studio and there's no hammers. Uh, true. Here. You know, you use what you can and, you know, we might not be trained in martial arts, so we're not just going to put it in there with, with the base of our yeah. hand. So an annuity is a tool. Mm-hmm. And, and for the right purpose, it's a very good tool. Right? I can actually use that hammer on that nail and, and it works pretty well. Okay. But oftentimes there are folks that the annuity is the only tool that they have. So it's like the hammer is the only tool that you have. And when the hammer is the only tool you have, everything becomes a nail. Yeah. That that screw, yeah, we're putting that in with a hammer. Unless it's a really, really big slotted screw, then that might work. But right, right. Very few but and far between. Not always, not always the best option out there, but it is a tool to use because it, it does particular things on purpose – and when you're using the right tool on purpose, it, it, it can make sense. Well, and let's talk a little bit about what an annuity is. Let's kind of like lay that baseline out there real quick. So the in the, in the most general sense, an annuity is a contract. That's what it is. It, it is a contract with a company, which is typically a life insurance company. And there are certain things inside of an annuity that, and here's the only time I can ever use this word, that are guaranteed. Okay. And they're guaranteed because it's a contract. So there might be certain things, and sometimes they have a rate of time that they're guaranteed for. Uh, things like a growth rate or an income base. A withdrawal percentage is oftentimes something that's guaranteed. Uh, a death benefit is oftentimes guaranteed in one of these contracts. And and there might be some other benefits in there that are guaranteed. Like if you are using this annuity uh, and you have, let's say, a a uh, long-term illness, we can actually turn on the long-term care expense part of the annuity, which increases your benefit base, but you're guaranteed X percentage of that to be able to be used. So that's where there are guarantees built in. And the last couple of years, because anytime there is a big downturn in the market, Mm -hmm. that is when we see those guarantees that come out and, and folks start, you know, to get a little worried and want to move to something a little bit more guaranteed. But the contract itself, that annuity itself, can actually be very confusing. Okay. And there's a reason for that. And it's not because, you know, of something necessarily nefarious. It's just because oftentimes when we're talking about an annuity contract, there are what I like to call the three different buckets of money that are involved. And even when you get, if you have an annuity and you actually get your statement, mm-hmm. you're going to see about six different places where there's a dollar figure listed okay. and none of them are the same number. It's crazy. It really? can be horrifically confusing for somebody just reading the statement. But as I'm talking with folks, 
I talk about the three different buckets of money that could be used inside of that particular contract. And the, the first bucket is the cash value or the surrender value, sometimes mm-hmm. we will call that. And that's the bucket of money where if at some point, because it's your money, right, it's your investment, and you say to that insurance company, hey, just give me all of my money back, yeah, that's the amount of money that you will get. And will you actually get all of that money back? I'm going to go full Evan on us here and give you an it depends. Okay. But there are criteria to the it depends, though. Okay. So if your contract is still in what they call the surrender period, meaning that there's a certain length of time in that contract that says, hey, you are giving us this money to use. If you leave it here for X amount of years, you can have all of it back. Mm Mm-hmm. If you take it out between now and then, there's a certain percentage that we're, we're going to keep because maybe we've paid out commissions, there have been fees associated with all of this, mm-hmm. and we haven't made our money back okay. on it yet. Uh, so there's a surrender period. I have seen them. Actually, I've seen some that have zero-year surrender periods that you could put your money in on Tuesday and request it back on Wednesday sort of things. There are others I've seen that have upwards of 15 or 16-year surrender periods okay and it's all going to be based on the particular product that's out there and and how it how it's structured and how it works so when we talk surrender value that means you're going to give up something if we talk cash value that means you're not giving up anything but it's that same bucket okay right it's that same bucket of money it's the money you have put in that you can get back out okay then we have what's called the withdrawal base the withdrawal base is the dollar amount based on your income rider. What's an income rider? That is, you know, it's it's like any other kind of a rider in a contract. It's something that's tacked on extra. But it's that piece that says when you start pulling out your income, we guarantee you'll be able to get it out at this particular rate as long as you're alive. Most of the uh, contracts we see these days are anywhere from 55 to 6%. Uh, there was one that was up to 7% until about two weeks ago, and it dropped back to 65 Okay. Most of that is going to be based on whatever the interest rates are at that point in time, because that's how the insurance companies will determine how much money they can send you. But the withdrawal base is that second bucket. This is the one I like to call the imaginary money. Okay. Because you can't say, hey, send me a check for the withdrawal amount. And the reason you can't is typically because when you put money in, uh, there there might be a particular uh, promotion going on that says, you put your money in and we're going to automatically increase that by 10%. So you put in $100,000, we're automatically going to call your withdrawal base 110. Okay. And then they have annual what they call roll-up rates or how much... They guarantee that's going to grow by every year. Sometimes you'll see a three and a half or a five and a half or a six and a half or a seven as a guaranteed roll up, and they guarantee that for a certain number of years. So you're guaranteed to have at least this amount more on your benefit base, regardless of what happens in the markets. We're going to increase the amount that we'll base your withdrawals on. By this percent for this many years. Okay. Um, There's a particular company we deal with that has what they call a double in 10. Rule of 72, 
says if you take 72, divide it by your rate of return, that tells you how long it takes to double. Well, if it's a double in 10, that means they guarantee 7.2% increase okay. year over year for 10 years. So you put in 100000 If you leave it for 10 years, they're going to base your withdrawal amount on 200000 regardless of what any of the underlying assets may do. That's the imaginary bucket. That's bucket two. Okay. Bucket three is the death benefit bucket. This has a little bit to do with that cash value bucket, but the death benefit is exactly what it sounds like because this is a life insurance contract, and if you get hit by a bus or die whatever other way, it's going to pay out a death benefit to the beneficiaries that you listed. Okay. The nice thing about the death benefit is this. If you have started pulling money out in those retirement years and you've done it using that withdrawal amount, they're going to count that against the actual cash value. But let's say that you decided, you know what, at age 70, Andrew, I'm going to start taking money out of this. And let's say, I like to use round numbers, you had $100,000 as your cash value. Mm -hmm. Whatever that benefit base was, you were able to pull out $1,000 a month. Okay. After one year, at age 71, you got hit by a bus. TJ may or may not have been driving it, but you got hit by the bus, and there is now a death benefit. Okay. You took out 12000 for your income. Mm-hmm. That 12000 came off the 100000 of actual cash value, so whoever you have listed as a beneficiary gets $88,000. Okay. So as long as there's a cash value in that policy, there is a death benefit on that policy. All right. No ideas, TJ. (laughs) So three buckets, cash value bucket, withdrawal-based bucket, death benefit bucket. Okay. Now, there are some terms oftentimes that get a bit misunderstood because they're industry jargon. We like to throw them out. In fact, I just threw one out a little bit ago that I'm going to come back and talk about here. Okay. One of those misunderstood terms is this term called indexing. Indexing. You will hear that when people are trying to talk about this annuity product. Hey, we do this kind of indexing. We do that kind of indexing. We do XYZ indexing. All that that means is that the cash value and perhaps even the way that the withdrawal benefit grows, but for the most part, the cash value of the account is tied to the performance of a specific market index. Okay. And oftentimes you can decide, I'm going to use the S&P 500 for maybe 30%, something like the Russell 1000 for 10%, and 60% we're going to tie to the Bloomberg aggregate, which is the bond market. Okay. And we're going to, you know, do some things through there. So it might be something that we know about, that we've heard about, S&P 500, Russell 1000, the NASDAQ. Other times, though, Andrew, they are indexes that are just created by a company. Okay. And the company takes, you know, a very wide swath of stocks and bonds and commodities. Uh, One of those out there that gets used by a number of different places is called the J.P. Morgan Mosaic Index. And that Mosaic Index looks at uh, stocks in, I think, four different regions it looks like in the U.S., in Europe, in Japan, and Australia, 
and it follows particular stocks, it follows some particular bonds, and it also follows the, the way that certain commodities are traded and what they do. Because what the, the insurance companies do is they actually take your money and buy contracts on these particular markets. Okay. And that's how you technically end up with the growth in there. You're not exactly invested, but when you're indexed, you're doing something that will follow what's going on in there. And we could go way out into the weeds and talk about the the call options and the put options and all that sort of stuff because that's what you do when the market is going up or going down or where you think it's going to go. But just understand that in the world of indexing, you're not actually invested in anything in particular. You are just being credited with a certain amount of growth in the assets that you're following. Okay. So the insurance company is the one making the money. They're going to credit a portion of that to your contract. So that's indexing. Oftentimes, we also see this thing called a participation rate. And I'm not, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, what, what, what did, uh, what did uh, Manny Machado call himself? He was not going to be, uh, you know, Joe Hustle or whatever it was to outrun a ground ball out in the, in the field. We're not oh. talking exactly that kind of participation. Um, but what we are talking about is the potential amount of what's called upside, right? That ability for the value of this to grow, a particular amount of that upside to be captured. Okay. Because oftentimes in an annuity, you're doing some trade-offs. You are getting rid of one risk, the risk of losing value, but you get that because you're going to say, and, I, and I'm okay with having at least zero growth and not losing money, I'm going to give up some of the big growth that could happen okay. in those assets. So, for example, you may have what's called a ceiling on your index. So, let's say you've got the S&P 500 as your index, and it has a 12% ceiling. And what that means in a year like last year, 2023, you would have gotten 12% growth on your cash value but the S&P 500 was up 24%. So you're losing out on that other 12. Exactly. You're losing out on the other 12, but what it also means is that in 2022 when the market was down 23, you didn't lose anything. Yeah. So you're giving up that that loss for that potential larger gain. You're you're picking up some security in there. There are also times where if you've got, say, a 12% cap and the market is up 9%, that index is up 9% on the year, you get all 9% because okay. you didn't go beyond your 12% cap. Now, if there is a participation rate in there, let's say that you got a 70% participation rate. What that means is if the index is up 24%, you're getting credited with 70% of whatever that up okay. happens to be. So- if it was up 28%, you're getting 70% of that. If it's up 10%, you're getting 70% of that. So you're getting a portion. The company is keeping basically 30% of the total gains. Yeah. Because that's how they then go out and pay for all the different things that it costs to administer and run a company like that. Okay. The last part 
is what's called the underlying asset, or sometimes they'll get called sub-accounts. And that's where you actually hold the actual assets of a, uh, a, a particular contract. If you hold a variable annuity, mm-hmm. your underlying assets are those mutual funds that you have chosen for the annuity. So technically, you own the funds inside yeah. there, and you're getting everything that those funds do on the ups, downs, and sideways. Um, it might be that you have chosen to put it in the stable account. So the stable account basically means it's a fixed rate of return. It's not going to vary from that. It might be 1%, 1.5%, 2%. That is the fixed rate stable value account. That is your underlying assets, like a savings account inside there. Okay. Um, it, it could also be a particular, I've seen some that have very particular stocks that you can choose inside. And what happens to the cash value of your account is linked directly to those exact holdings that you've got going on in there. So the grand scheme here, though, ultimately, as a tool, the annuity is something we use to provide a level of of safety, a level of security, some particular guarantees in really looking at what might happen in a market downturn. Now, I cannot accurately predict every single year that we are going to have yeah. a market downturn. Can't do it. Not going to happen. My my crystal ball uh, looks like it was out in last week's snowstorm, okay. right? Quite fuzzy. Maybe even, you know, a little broken because a kid may have smacked it with a hammer or something. But the reality is there are certain portions, maybe, of a portfolio that makes sense to use those tools in. Okay. Would I ever recommend somebody go 100% into annuities? No way, no shape, no how. Especially if we're talking it's somebody in their 20s or 30s or 40s. Yeah. As we are getting close to those retirement years, is sometimes as we're in those retirement years, that becomes a good tool to use at that point. Not for the whole portfolio, but for a portion of yeah. what our overall assets are. And part of that does deal with the liquidity side of it. I don't want to tie up your investment for 10 years if I don't have to. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, you know, I could I could get a three-month CD, a six-month CD, or a five-year CD. But if I get that five-year CD and I don't hold it for all five years, it's going to cost me money to get my money back. Yeah. So they're good tools for the right job. Okay. I'm not going to put uh, a new deck on my house with a staple gun. Not the right tool. True. Staples probably not long enough to actually get through the boards down into the uh, uh, d- down into those floor joists. Unless we're talking there. pneumatic, but that's a completely different tool. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. Yeah. So it's all about the right tool for the right job. Yeah, and I mean, at the end of the day, and especially on some of those annuities, and as they're tracking that, why not, if you're going to find one that has those underlying or something that maybe mirrors the S&P 500, why not just a mutual fund that does the same thing? Exactly, exactly. And part of that really, though, becomes with the security that I'm looking for. You know, I don't ever want the value of this to go down. So while my cash value might float up and down, what I'm really looking for is to build the income, so I'm willing to just 
ride the the smaller roller coaster on the income. But in that long term, grand scheme sort of thing, based on most of your participation rates or your caps that are put on the annuities, more often than not, you're actually better off using your own mutual fund, having access to it, being able to make some decisions along the way as well to have that access to those assets whenever you want. Yeah, to be able to do some course corrections even. Exactly. Exactly. Well, folks, that is all of the time we have for this episode of Money Matters. If you've got questions, because I know we covered some uh, some big, deep topics this week, Andrew. Yeah. Folks, if you've got questions about something that you're seeing, something that you're hearing, uh, maybe it's something that you know popped up on social media that you've got a question about. Does it make sense? Is it any good? Feel free to reach out to me, 719-500-8700. We'll take a look. We'll take a listen. I'll walk you through all the things because, folks, the reality is they are advertisements. Yeah. They are trying to, Andrew, sell people things. Someone's going to get their back scratched on this. Exactly. You make sure it's you. Exactly. We want to make sure that if it's the right thing for you, yes, we say go for it. Right? So we'll go through. I'll explain all that sort of stuff. If you've got those questions, reach out. 719-500-8700. Always happy to have that conversation. Folks, that is all the time we have this week on Money Matters. We will be back again next week. We will continue talking about your money because your money matters. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Thanks.